Hey there, this is Andy Baker again, and you're listening to the Baker's Dozen podcast, where I serve up analysis of current TV series from the perspective of a development executive and screenwriter. And I do so 13 delicious bites at a time. This is Wattcast number seven, where I deep dive into the finale of The Wheel of Time, episode eight, The Eye of the World. So as I've said before, I worked in and continue to work in development, reading scripts, providing feedback, and clearly with a show like Wheel of Time, they've got a writing staff, they've got a bunch of producers, there's a group of people who are involved in signing off on the scripts. And there's a whole approval process. It's far more complex in a show like Wheel of Time where big budget, Lots of people have to sign off on it. Other people get a chance to look at it, like Brandon Sanderson, Robert Jordan's wife. Obviously, it all comes back to Rafe, but in the end, they're writing, they have a, a big outline, which people signed off on, and then they broke it down by episode, and those outlines needed to get approved. And then they had the script process, you know, having... You can't have too many people who need to sign off on it, because then everything gets completely bugged out, and you can't possibly address all of the notes. But whatever group they ultimately decided gets to have their input listened to. And of course, then you have to rank it as to who needs to be appeased the most. But and that's a long and complex process. Not going to talk about it now. Don't need to. Anyway, it's involved, but there is a group of brains and eyeballs that are involved where you finally end up with the finished draft. And so... On the one hand, it's like, how does anything coherent come out of that process? And it's a fair question. But it's also surprising when things sneak through or not sneak through, but everyone just collectively decides to ignore logic and or just make choices where you're like, I don't understand why you would do that. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but obviously with things out of their control, like Barney Harris leaving the show and having to do last minute rewrites, that's forgivable chaos. They had a long lead time to produce these scripts. And when there are just significant logic issues, it drives you nuts. Anyway, this is coming from a place, this episode of someone, again, who works in development is also a screenwriter where I see these things and wonder why isn't that person in the room? Why isn't a development person like me? And hey, if you want to hire somebody, hey, Rafe, give me a call. But this idea of having somebody look at the story and be willing to give honest notes that need to be addressed. And this is good writers, great writers. This is what they ask for. They ask for honesty. And the relationships I have with certain writers were, you know, giving that kind of feedback you have to set the ego aside and say, is this feedback I'm getting, is it valuable? Does it make the story better? Does it make the story hold up? It is the difference between a story and a TV show that is watchable and one that is really substantive and that will ultimately withstand the tests of time and be something perhaps more meaningful, at least something like Wheel of Time, which is coming from this very strong source material that you need some minds looking at this and saying, 
don't do it this way, or no, I'm not, I'm not saying this as a purist when it comes to, you can't change anything. I've said throughout all of these podcasts that there's plenty of stuff that they have done, which have been fine, even though I come from a place to really enjoying the books and, and perhaps wanting a more pure experience than some, but they've made changes and they've been fine and interesting. And I'm curious where things are going to go with it, but there's also changes and choices being made, which they didn't have to make, which just leaves holes and leaves it so it's okay. This is another forward momentum show where you can watch it and have it wash over you. But if you think about it too hard, you'll just end up being disappointed. And it didn't have to be that way, which is sad and frustrating. But anyway, long preamble, it's time to jump into our 13 points of the week, focusing again, specifically on the process of development and the choices and the notes that I wish they had gotten and addressed before they shot this thing. One. Stuff I liked. Now, this is where the English teacher in me comes out. I'm having been an English teacher for a decade and a half along the way that, uh, it's the comment sandwich. You've all experienced it. You write an English paper, you get the paper back from your teacher and you go flip to the end to get the end note. And it says, dear student. And it starts with a nice sentence. This is a really interesting take on Hamlet and the relationship between Hamlet and his mother. And then there is a sentence or two in the middle, which gets to the critique and criticism. And then you pull back at the end and say something nice so that a student doesn't walk away from this thinking, oh my gosh, they hated the paper. Anyway, so the comment sandwich, I'm going to start here with focusing on the things that I liked. A lot of the acting remains great. I am looking forward to season two and seeing how particularly the young actors grow into their roles. I think I like the dynamic of the dark one probably thinking that he tricked Rand into breaking the seal and he did and tricked Moraine, but really the wheel and the creator wants to bring about the final battle. And so you kind of need the seals being broken. And so it's this cat and mouse game of the dark one thinks that he has tricked Rand. And meanwhile, what Rand did had to happen to bring about the final battle, which is of course what the creator wants, that this is the wheel. It turns, you have the confrontation, and then the wheel turns again. I like Mr. Fire Eyes. They're calling him the dark one in the credits. They refer to him as the man, at least on IMDb. Certainly there's a lot of talk about who this actor is playing really. Not going to get into that now because I don't want to spoil anything, but I like this actor and he had some good dialogue and it was well delivered. So I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed that they're going to be making Matt darker. This is one of the perhaps bigger changes, which I'm all for. See, again, this is me trying to point out the fact that I'm good with there being changes. And Matt had some edge to him in the books. Heron went through some issues. Rand went through some issues. But by and large, they felt pretty good most of the time. Matt, a little more complex along the shades of light and dark, which made him really popular and certainly was my favorite character when I read the books. So given that they are pushing these characters and accelerating the story, I'm totally on board with this idea that he, Matt, will go to a place that he doesn't in the books, that we need to push the drama a little bit. And maybe the books could have used that. And so I'm here for this. I'm very curious to see just how far they're willing to push Matt's character. And finally, the, I did Peyton Fain really having his threat level elevated. He now has the horn and the dagger. 
And it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays into season two. Actor's doing a great job. Clearly the writers are enjoying writing for him, or at least Rafe is, because he wrote episode one and eight. So I'm very curious to see where they go with him. And I really am enjoying him. And given, I don't, again, don't want to give anything away, but given how Peyton Fane was handled in the books, I'm hopeful that the show is going to be more consistent in how they handle this character and have him be one of the faces of evil that is consistently a threat to our team. Dude. I think you're going to need to walk some things back. This is a, a note that I often give when I'm giving feedback on scripts, particularly fantasy and sci-fi. And I would have given this note throughout episode eight here that you're going to need to, if you're going to have logic underlying what's happening in your story and you need it, particularly in things like fantasy, you, there'll be the temptation always to push the limits and then have to dial it back. And you can create different ways where that's possible, where obviously some of it is built into this story that Nynaeve is just that powerful. And so she can do things people, other people haven't seen. And, and she's capable of things that she didn't even know. Again, you need to have an underlying logic to it so that because your viewers slash readers, they don't necessarily know that they're counting on you to be consistent, but they'll know when it doesn't feel right. And so shows will often push these limits and then have to dial it back or renegotiate with the audience because they need cool stuff to put on screen. They need things to be heightened when we get to the climax of a story or here at the end of a season. But they can't keep doing that. They can't have characters be able to have godlike powers over and over again because then it becomes boring, easy, and cheap. And you're always wondering why aren't they doing that when they're in a situation where they really should do that. And rules exist within the fantasy story world to allow for a certain amount of limits to what can happen. And obviously the Wheel of Time books spend a lot of time establishing that magic system and all of the rules in place. And again, can bend them every now and again when you're up against something or dealing with something that's more powerful than expected. But then you have to put it into a context where it's, oh, okay, that can't happen every time. So an example, I'm telling you at the beginning of next season, there's going to be a big old healing scene where Loyal is going to be, you know, healed to some degree. Uno's not dead. I don't know. They might even bring back Eglamar. When you have the healing ability of Nynaeve and now Egwene, that's too powerful. And so no one is ever going to be really threatened with danger and death who's right with those characters. And so... They're going to need to nerf that somehow. And you can see how they're going to do it. It's going to be like, I don't know. And I going to say, I don't know what I did. I just did it. And Egwene's going to be the same way. I couldn't do anything. And I was just so desperate. And then magically the power just leaked out of me and healed her. Don't know what I did. Can't control it. Can't show it to you. Can't recreate it. And I'm going to have to go to the White Tower and start training so that I can maybe get control of that thing. They're going to... Again, those two probably are going to be at the heart of healing all of these other characters and then be able to, it'll be naive probably because Egwene seems far more mystical and magical and she doesn't know what she did. And then, but they're going to, again, have to go to the White Tower to train and it'll be explained away why they're not able to heal everybody all the time. 
They're also going to have to nerf linking. It's too powerful. We had weak and inexperienced people who did this. So you knocked out an entire massive army. And I, I wouldn't, Maureen, if Maureen knows all about this kind of power. Okay, yeah, people are going to die at the eye. But if I can link with Egwene and Nynaeve, doesn't that give us a massive power? Not necessarily advantage, but you know, that's a weapon you bring with you to the eye. It's not one you leave behind. It just seems inconsistent and, again, overpowered for presumably three people who don't have a lot of power and two who have a ton, but to be able to then do what they do, wiping out all of these armies just seems okay. Linking's a thing. Even someone who never arose to full Aes Sedai can do it. And it has this kind of an impact. They would be doing this more often with a train group. They would have trained to do this, you know, a, a linking in, in a circle and it's just the kind of thing like we're breaking it out here at the end of the season to do something really big, visually cool. And then we're going to have to dial it back next season and say, it's really not that easy. You can't do it. And it's really dangerous. And hey, you remember when Leander did it and she nearly burned out? Well, that's because they were up against a super powerful male channeler. But it's that's going to be the excuse. We can't risk people burning out, even though... If being linked in a circle like this were that easy all the time, they would have trained to do it. They would know what their limits were and they would be able to deal with threats. Like, frankly, if linking is this easy, they should be able to step in and just mow down Senshin in season two. They're not going to want that. That'd be too easy. And so they're going to have to nerf this somehow. And it's going to feel cheap to us because it's like, hey, they did it before with people who aren't really all that powerful and now they can't. Why? We just can't. Like, come on now. Be consistent with your rules. All right, I'm just getting worked up. I don't want to be insulting. I guess I'm reacting because I feel like a lot of the writing here is insulting us as viewers. And so need to point that out. Anyway, back to Loyal. He will need to be healed of the dagger stab, setting aside the fact that he probably should die instantly. They're going to, given that it's the blade from Shadar Lagoth, they're going to throw in some new rules. Like, it doesn't hurt Ogier the same way that it hurts people. It affects them more slowly because their relationship with time is always so slow. It's one of the ways that it is just how it's useful, how different they are. And maybe they're going to have to take him to a steading and then the power of the dark wound is not going to be, be able to progress as fast there because there's different rules in the steading. And he's going to have to be able to hold out while they go in search of the dagger and then be able to figure out um, how to heal him. And anyway, it's going to be, they're going to have to create some new rules around how the dagger affects people or affects Ogier as opposed to people. And I know that this was a mess created by Matt not being around for the last couple of episodes, but it just seems they're going to again have to walk it back a little bit and say, yes, it was super dangerous, but not with him. And so we can continue on with our story and have the same danger that we had before. Not sure I agree with it, but again, this is the kind of thing. If the script was put in front of me and this was a solution, these are the questions that I would raise. I've had plenty of writers ignore me and ultimately be right, but something here with the dagger obviously they're having to play a little fast and loose with even rules that they themselves were already establishing about how dangerous anything is from shadar logoth and 
just how bad Matt was. Loyal, they're just going to have to handle it in a different way. Like you heard how many times it went into his body. You could hear it being sheathed and resheathed in, in Loyal's chest. And then we're going to come back and be like, oh, we didn't have to be worried about him the whole time. It'll feel cheap. It's cheap writing. It's poor writing. All right. And finally, the, the overarching thing here when it comes to needing to walk things back is they have not created a magic system or borrowed enough from Robert Jordan's magic system to be consistent. They are using it to give them whatever they want dramatically and whatever they need to extricate themselves from writing problems. And that is comic book writing. And I say this loving comic books and having worked in that area, I worked with Stan Lee for a long time, but this is where, to me, Rafe's background with working on S.H.I.E.L.D. is coming through, where it's, okay, anytime we want to be able to showcase these cool powers, and so we're going to write them into corners, and then the magic stuff is going to get us out of it, even though then that creates a new thing. It's the superhero problem. Like, why isn't Superman using his heat ray vision in this particular scenario where it'd be really helpful. You write yourself into a corner and then you take off audiences who know all of the powers that these people have. And when they're not using the ones that they really should use in that situation, they feel betrayed. And that's what's starting to happen here is that there's going to be no consistency. At least there hasn't been so far in the magic system. It's just whatever gives us drama and whatever gets us out of uh, a corner that we've written ourselves into. It is the essence of cheap and easy TV drama solutions. And that's fine if you want to be a cheap and easy TV show. There's plenty of them that we all enjoy. But the ones that are trying to elevate the form and are trying to do something different, more substantive, more interesting, more compelling, you don't allow yourself to have these issues. You have to, it's harder writing, frankly, to be consistent, to have logic underneath something that to a lot of people feels illogical, like a fantasy world, but you need to ground it somehow. And they're not grounding it. They're just going for cheap and easy. And it's unfortunate. Three. So are we choosing theme over plot? So that opening, we have over the course of the series, and I've talked about this on previous episodes, this idea of gender being this theme that is coursing throughout. And obviously people have talked a lot about some of the gender good and bad in Robert Jordan's series, but they're clearly making some choices here in the opening about not showing just how desperate things were in the books when it came to making this decision to try to imprison the dark one and it's a very calm conversation that these two are having and it circles around this question of men wanting to do things to suit their pride and the women being more cautious and saying, you're not going to be able to accomplish this and lose there and saying back, well, we would succeed if we had your help. And so this is being layered in as the central problem as to why they didn't win in the past. You have to establish that, right? Why is Rand going to be able to succeed? Why are the characters that we are getting to know in the series able to succeed? when previous ones were not. And they've established the problem that men and women didn't work together, that they were opposed to one another. And obviously we are seeing some of that 
within our group. We have the love triangle. Yes. And these issues between men and women needing to be able to set them aside and see that they all come from the one place, that their powers are not so different, and that Leandra and her anger around men articulating that this is an issue which they're going to have to overcome so that they can come together in the last battle and not make the same mistake that Luz Theron did here in the intro where you had the two genders not working together. So again, they're layering that in. I'm just wondering, my question after reading this intro, I would have talked to the writer, um, in this case, Rafe, and said, are you leaning too heavily into your theme here over the plot? It just seemed like too quiet a conversation between these two when they are talking about large existential questions. And really, this city that they're in does not seem in any way, shape, or form threatened, which takes a lot of the urgency out of what they were trying to do. And yes, I'm, I'm aware that they'll probably go back and revisit these characters. Maybe not, but so we can see what happened and what didn't work and why. But I, I just worry when, you know, this is emblematic of the choices that they are making, that plot often is falling by the wayside. And so I would just raise that question of, is this the best way to depict this opening scene? Because it seems like you're trying to stress a theme, but as an end result, making us perhaps not as, I don't know, invested in the, the drama of this moment and the import of this moment. Because again, they're talking about major existential questions and they quite literally could have been there drinking tea. Four. Is this really what you want to be doing with Moraine? Now, Moraine, obviously they have shaped the show, at least season one, around her in large part because it's Rosamund Pike and why wouldn't you? But one of the issues, you have to be consistent with your character. They're on a journey, they're going to evolve, they're going to change, but everything they say and everything they do ends up becoming who they are as a character and how we think and feel about them as a viewer. And so moments like Moraine buying into the fact that this is the dark one. It doesn't feel like she would be that credulous and that she would think that the dark one would manifest looking this way. It seems incredibly naive and makes her seem naive. And that's not how we want to think and feel about Maureen. Also didn't like things like Maureen very casually mentioning that records were purged from the White Tower by dark friends. That's a big deal, right? There are dark friends in the tower. That is massive. Okay. We've seen that there are dark friends everywhere and we might assume that there are dark friends in the white tower, but that is a super big reveal and it is a very dangerous situation. And it is said very casually and not mentioned again. It's the kind of thing that Maureen would talk about, think about, worry about. And again, so said so very casually that uh, this, you know, happened in the past. What happened in the aftermath of that? Did you find out who did this? Anyway, it, it is something that again, affects how we think and feel about Maureen. And frankly, and I'll get to this later, but I, I think this was just one of the seeds that Rafe and others feel like they have snuck in here. That explains some stuff that when we look back, we'll go, oh, okay. But it's cheap in that they are sneaking it in 
when somebody should comment on that, even Rand could comment and what there are dark friends in the White Tower purging records and you're not concerned about this. They, she, you're, no one's commenting on it because that would call too much attention to it, even though the moment it would make us expect that someone should comment on this. Again, it's cheap to force your characters to not address something big because you want it to stay small so it avoids detection. That's the writer imposing their will on something that really wouldn't play out that way between those characters in that moment. You have to listen to the characters and obey the characters. You start forcing them into situations that aren't natural to who they are in the world of the story. And again, audiences will feel betrayed. Also didn't really like Moraine not questioning Rand about remembering this place, setting aside the fact that they don't know what this place was apparently. And she would be asking a million questions about it. If he has memories here the entire time, she'd be saying, think about this, what could it be? And, but she dug into Loghain for talking about having heard the voices of previous dragons, I guess now because Rand is the dragon reborn or she thinks he is just because he showed up at her doorway and said he was that it's okay that he's hearing from previous dragons now, or wouldn't she be thinking that he's going mad because he's hearing these voices? Anyway, she doesn't question the fact that Rand is remembering this place and seeing things. And again, it's having a character not talk about something that they would be talking about in that moment, given the circumstances. And obviously you can't have every character saying everything that they might say in a conversation because then conversations would go on a lot longer and that's just the nature of writing dialogue. But when it's a big thing, you would think that they would address it and they're not. The same goes for at the end. There's a lot of clearly a lot of debate in the viewing and book reader community about is Moraine stilled or is she simply shielded? And part of the reason why we don't know is because the writers are being coy. They're withholding that information. Ooh, you need to think about this all off season until we come back next year or whenever they come back. And Moraine has a moment here with Lan where she would use the direct language, but they don't have her do that. That's where it becomes cheap. It's fine for us to not know if it ends in a place of uncertainty. But when Lan's there and saying, let me in again, and she's saying, I can't touch the source, we don't know if she's stilled or shielded. She would tell him, I am stilled or I am shielded. One of them is something that's final. And maybe the writers think that her tears in the aftermath of her saying is that she can't touch the source conveys that she's stilled. It's in the end, I get it. It's not going to matter. She's going to have her power restored at some point. They're not going to have her powerless for the rest of the show. It's just not going to happen. She'll go on a journey to be able to get back to a place where she has the power because that's interesting for an actress to struggle with that and deal with real loss and then trying to get some redemption. But anyway, this was just one of those things like, okay, the character would use specific language in this conversation with Lan to explain what had happened to her. And she doesn't. Why? Because the writers don't want to answer that question for us. They want us wondering. And again, it's fine if it's in a moment of uncertainty, but this is a moment of certainty for Moraine and a moment where she would explain it to Lan and she doesn't. It's cheap and it's frankly unfair to the viewer. And so some of the outrage that you see in the community, viewers and readers, is precisely that. They know that this was a moment it would have been said, and then it wasn't.
five. Is this enough for parent to do? Some notes are given on very specific scenes, moments, and a script. And then there are the bigger notes that are given when you see the sort of season outline and then the episode breakdowns. And anyone looking at the, every you should be tracking every character's arc to see if they have enough to do, if it's been interesting, particularly in an ensemble piece, which Rafe himself has said that this is going to be. You have to give everybody stuff to do, particularly when you are accelerating your story. You don't have time to have a character, a major character sitting around and doing nothing for a long stretch. Okay. Yeah. In, in the first book, he doesn't do a lot, but over the course of the series, he does. And you're going to have to get all of that in. You need to, you're already airlifting stuff left and right. Why aren't you airlifting something for Perrin to do in Faldara? Like grabbing a, being handed an extra pickaxe is not enough. It is a perfect encapsulation that we have Perrin, who has done largely nothing over the course of the first season, kicking a bench and saying, I've got nothing to do. Yeah, because the writers haven't given him enough to do. And this is on the writers to some degree. It is definitely on Rafe and any producers who are empowered to give notes and in a position to give that global feedback, why they don't have someone just doing a, a Perrin check and a Matt check and a Rand check and a Gwen check and a Nee check and saying, are they doing enough over the course of this season? Especially since in an ensemble show, you've got viewers at home who they pick and choose which character they're most invested in. Everyone is your, you have Matt people, you have Perrin people. It's like picking a beetle. You have a favorite. Some people really like Perrin and they are going to be horribly let down by this season. And it's so avoidable and it's embarrassing. Like again, where are their producers and writers on this? doing the job that they need to do to map this out. Again, I know it's hard, but you got to do the work. Perrin was wasted and it's really unfortunate. Six. Six. Too soon? So Lan's speech to Nynaeve. They're accelerating the relationships in, in a series like this, in a season like this you are going to have to accelerate things, but they were doing such a nice job in simmering the relationship between Lan and Nynaeve. And then one night they hook up and then suddenly we're in a place where she's talking about marriage and the books mess this up. The books are not perfect. And so much of the courtship between Lan and Nynaeve happens off screen, off page. And this is it. This is where you have the ability in an adaptation, not only to explore the world of the story, but you can actually fix some things that can be fixed. And it seemed like they were doing that with Lan and Naive, that they were going to maybe get closer to getting the Lan Naive relationship, the courtship part of it anyway. And they could have fixed it, but they didn't. And, and this is the perfect encapsulation of wasting the opportunity to adapt the source material. If I can be a little cheesily metaphoric here, think of the books as the true source. Everyone weaves the one power differently. Rafe had the opportunity to weave something beautiful here from the true source of the books, but has wasted the potential and it's, it's corrupted now. It, it is, it's got the taint, even though they don't want to use that word. Again, it is unfortunate 
that they decided to go from simmering heat between these two to fast-forwarding through will they, won't they, to yes, they will, to okay, yes, you're gonna, I'm gonna send you off to possibly die, but I'm gonna tell you that I want to marry you. What? This feels like maybe this was a choice that was made because they were gonna finish in one season if they had to, and they wanted to pay that off, and it makes it fit like an eight-hour miniseries that they could sell over in international markets. But it just was way too fast. It was a poor call, and I wish someone would have said that to Rafe before he put it to paper. Like, that's the speech. The moment is wonderful. It's great. Loved it in the books. It's happening too soon, and it is not supported enough. The foundation has not been built up enough. It could have been a better payoff later, and they blew it. And then on a side note, just because I'm talking about Lan, the simple fact that Lan didn't pick up on a tell that Moraine has when it comes to being able to be tracked, that outside of the absurdity of that, it really undercuts Lan and his ability. He already got undercut once that he was able to be tracked by Nynaeve, or at least now we know it's Moraine that she was following, that the fact that he didn't notice, didn't hear her coming, he was already weakened there. And now here we are further weakened that here the person that he has been with for 20 years has a tell that he is not aware of. It's embarrassing and it undercuts the character. And I would have put a note on that script saying, no, I, I cut this. They put it in there as a setup and a payoff to make it possible for Land to find Moraine. I just think it was a solution that undercut Land, and it would be one that I would recommend that they not do. Seven. Is Rand developed enough? This is another one of those you know, season-long arcs that I would look at and say, did we get to an interesting enough place? Like, obviously, they lean heavily into the who is the dragon mystery, and then Rand solves it for himself, and he's going to go to the eye. But and I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hoping, that they mapped out all eight seasons and that they have decided what Rand's arc is going to be over those eight seasons, what happens in each season that shows Rand developing and becoming the dragon reborn that has to be there at the last battle, preparing him for that. And so you need to have this slow escalation of his powers. You can't have him too overpowered at any point. And I can understand why they moved away from the end of the book, The Eye of the World, because that too would have been something that you had to nerf. But this seems like preemptive nerfing here, where they are not even going to show us what Rand is capable of. We see him having the power swirling around him, but it becomes all about the Saw Angreal, where this is going to be make you a hundred times more powerful because it is the power of a thousand people. And I'm not sure how that math works, but he's going to be a hundred times more powerful than what? We haven't seen what he is capable of. We haven't even been given a glimpse. And I'm thinking of the people who are not book readers who are watching the show like we've seen. We didn't know it was him at the time, but he blasted a Trolloc off the path in the ways and he knocked down a door. What? What is he capable of? We have no idea. And now he's going to be a hundred times more powerful than no idea. That is not a useful way to, like, that's all of season one. There are seven more seasons and we don't know what his baseline is at this point. It's a hard thing to do to be able to see how his progression is when we don't even 
We've got no glimpse of really what he's capable of in season one. And part of this is their way to keep him, as I said in a previous episode, keep him back with the pack, that you can't have him do too much too soon. You can't have him be too powerful if you're really trying to do an ensemble piece, because then he should be the one solving all of the problems and he doesn't need the help of anybody else. And while I get all of that, you needed to give more than they did. I, I would, that would have been my note that here's your eight season plan. Did you do enough in part one? I would argue that you haven't, that you need to infuse it with a little bit more, give him more to do here at the eye of the world, because in the end, where are we left with Rand? He had a sawing grill and he shattered the seal, presumably, and blasted the quote-unquote dark one who disappears with a smirk on his face. What is Rand capable of? We have no idea. We just know he's the dragon reborn because he's told us. Not enough for me if I'm a development executive and reading the, the scripts and reading the outlines. I'm saying, I think you need to do a little bit more with Rand. Eight. Seems too easy. So this is often a problem in scripts where solutions, you want to get, solve a problem quickly and the solution ends up being too easy because reasons. And I, I have to hope that what they did with the Horn of Valer is connected to Matt not being around for this episode. But I, I just, I imagine that this was going to be the solution the whole time. And again, I understand there's going to have to be some acceleration to have a very mild spoiler disc. He's not going to name one artifact from in the later books, the Bowl of the Winds. I'm not going to say anything more about that. But there's a lot of time spent in getting to it, which I think you can condense when they get around to those books. And you could have, if you're going to put anything underneath a throne, it would be the bowl of the winds just because you don't want to go searching for that thing. You don't want to spend all of the pages that Robert Jordan did. But the Horn of Valer, as you know, being as important as it is to just suddenly reveal that, oh, hey, the horn's been here the whole time. We just have to take some pickaxes to this, to the throne. And, oh, and by the way, when we take it out, we are then just going to leave it there for a minute to go deal with a noise we just heard. Like, what are you doing? This is the, it is such an overly easy solution to a problem. And somebody should have called BS on this and they just didn't. And when you have someone giving feedback and pointing out like, this is too easy, you have to add more substance to it. Those things pile up where you're like, gosh, easy solution after easy solution. There's no real deep conflict here at all. Gosh, maddening. Nine. Is this the best way to repurpose cool book stuff? When I give notes, often I'll list a bunch of notes, not a bunch, but there'll be some notes in there where I know that I'm probably going to give up the fight on this one, that it's going to be the ones where it's, you know what, you're right. I just wanted to question it. You have a reason for doing it and I can see that it's fine to leave it in there, but I wanted to raise the question. And I, I do that often in part because there are some notes that I want to really fight for and having put some notes on there that you're willing to give up helps you win some of those other battles. Anyway, that tactic aside, Rand seeing his life with Egwene. It's interesting, the repurposing of it, but it, that wasn't his business in the books. And I don't want to give anything away for later books, although I, can, I would imagine now that they're not going to be doing it, because they just used it here and it would feel repetitive then. But he is not the one who sees this vision 
and has to struggle with it. But they just decided, huh, we're going to pull that in here. It's going to be a payoff to all of the relationship drama between Rand and Egwene over the course of the first season. And so there feels like there's some emotional stakes here. And so Rand can seem like a really good guy when he's like, I'm not going to just create the world as I want it to be because I love her and she should fully manifest. All Everything he says is right and beautiful and wonderful. That's how you want to articulate their love for somebody else and their love for you. But it set up an interesting moment of choice. But do you, with anything that Rafe and the others are repurposing or moving around, it has a ripple effect. And as I understand it, they've got some consultants who are true lovers of Wheel of Time lore, know it through and through, and lots of franchises have that. These people who are consultants to explain what would happen if or you're the one like, okay, that stuff through and through. So if I write this storyline, does it violate any of the rules and whatnot of this, of the story world? And as I understand it, Rafe has at least one person like that, where he is asking questions about, okay, if I did this, what would it affect? And in the end, would the other characters having these visions of lives that they might have led. Do we need to have that later on? If we take it away from where it was and use it here, is that going to ruin anything? Ultimately, I don't think it will. I liked how it was in the books. I liked how it was here. In the end, it's an interesting emotional pull. But I would, again, just raise the question, is this the best way to repurpose some the book stuff? I don't, I'm hopeful that they ask that question. Are they asking that question? Do they have enough people asking those questions? Because that's at the essence, at the heart of good script development is having even the showrunner being open to having all of their decisions questioned when it comes to pulling the story together. This one, I think, worked. I'm curious to see how it affects what happens with some of our characters later on in the context around which these this kind of vision came from in Robert Jordan's mind. Ten. Is this going to pay off the way you want it to? So, Poddenfane has the dagger. Last we knew, the dagger was in Tarvalon, Lan had wrapped it into a blanket, and we can assume that Moraine, or I guess it's safe to assume that she would have brought it back to the White Tower, and you know, it would have gotten tucked away somewhere in there, probably Raiders of the Lost Ark style, shoved into a space with a whole bunch of other things. But now Fane has it, not that long afterwards. So it got to somebody who then decided to give it to Fane who they themselves must be a dark friend working for the dark one. And so this harkens back to what I was saying before about Moraine and questions of people purging records in the White Tower. There are dark friends in the White Tower. We now have a second data point that the dagger did not get to where it was supposed to be. It ends up in the hands of Fane. Now, I'm guessing that this is a little trail of breadcrumbs that Rafe and the writers and the producers believe that they are laying down. We may even get a flashback to Fane getting his hands on the dagger, but we have heard that Leandrin meets a man in the North Harbor. And are we going to find out that that is Fane, that she gave him the dagger, that this is this feels like the pieces that they have thrown in there that seem random in and of themselves, but when you put them together, 
oh, okay, we've been told in two different ways that there are dark friends in the White Tower and Fane has the dagger, so there had to be a handoff at some point, and we know Fane was in Tarvalon. And so, you know, who have we met who might possibly be somebody in the White Tower who might be evil? And maybe it'll be someone who surprises us. But again, we have that random fact about Leandrin meeting with a man. Anyway, so just wanted to point that out. Um, is this going to pay off the way you want it to? Are people going to be able to follow these uh, breadcrumbs? I am not certain. It could be interesting. But again, this would have been a note that I gave to simply raise the question, are people going to catch this and understand ultimately what it meant and what it led to? 11. Is there enough logic in the visuals? So I'll just say it, stupid war tactics. When you are setting up a series of not only shots, but scenes, events, you want to arrange them in a narratively dramatic way that you have escalating stakes, smaller battles leading to bigger battles, leading to the biggest confrontations. And so you end up shaping your story to create those kinds of encounters. It's very simple. You see it all the time. The good guy mows through a whole bunch of foot soldiers, and then the lead bad guy has a second in command that they end up having to confront, and then they get to fight the main bad guy. We, we're familiar with this. But when you create a situation where your viewers can very easily say, why did they do it that way? It makes no sense. It makes them seem stupid. And so this whole idea of, okay, we're going to have the group of linking Aes Sedai stay back close to the city, even though when they link, they have the ability to mow down armies before they're able to even get to the hand-to-hand -hand combat. And yeah, I get it that some of that was unpredictable in that they didn't know how powerful Egwene and Nynaeve were. But even the fact that they, why aren't anyone who has any ability with the power, why aren't they atop of the garrison at the Gap blasting from there, trying to protect the men? That would be the most effective way to do it. Never mind the fact that you know, the men hopped on the horses and did a charge just to go into the wall and then take positions. All of that made no sense at all. It gave them some trailer moments and even little details like, they want anybody in the city who is able to use even a trickle of the power. Given that there's only three of them beyond Egwene and Nynaeve, they would know who those people were. There's three of them. I, it, it made no sense. But again, if anything, the, the men should be the ones behind and the women out front. But barring that, put the women on the top of the wall and the men inside it ready to, to battle and support them. Having it be so like, okay, the men are there and once they're all dead, the remaining trollocs are going to come storming on through and almost get to the linking women before they blast out of the sky. It's a forward momentum sequence where it's like, ah, don't look too closely at this. Don't question. It is just simply going to be this way because it's more fun and visual that way. When anyone with half a brain looks at it and says, it just wouldn't happen that way. And you don't want your audience ever thinking or feeling that. It needs to follow some sort of logic. And it just defied all logic. 
Same goes for the final visual where we have the sentient showing up and they create a tsunami, which, you know, that poor kid on the beach is going to get crushed by. There is no reason to do that. We can see just as well as the sentient can that there are some cliffs there. There is no town to wipe out. You could say, oh, well, there's a town right on the other side. The, the wave isn't going to have that kind of an impact, is it? And it is really there just for the cheap reason, establishing the sentient, establishing that they have people who can use the power that they're evil and intimidating. And again, it's a, a shot to leave off on saying, hey, these are your season two bad guys. It's cheap and easy writing. It's Rafe being the S.H.I.E.L.D. writer that apparently he still is. And I say this really liking S.H.I.E.L.D., but the S.H.I.E.L.D. never pretended to be anything other than they were. Wheel of Time, it's a different ball game, and but he is not treating it as something that needs to have more substance to it. He's still going for visual over substance, visual over meaningful plot and there it's just you don't need the tidal wave there never mind the fact that i'm sure there are some oceanographers out there who can point out okay if you were to take that much water up into the air the other water levels by the ships would go down like nothing follows any logic there it is simply like somebody thought like this would be a great image probably rafe to end on what an intimidating moment to cut away from and it's cheap, it's cheap, and they shouldn't have done it. The feedback they would have gotten from me was, if you're going to have them use this tidal wave, then you need to have them have a reason to do it. And there was none on the screen. If anything that you might say as to why they might do it, that there's a city on the other side and they want to be really intimidating and show who the, the new big guy in town is, then we need to see the people who would see that and be intimidated by it, but we're not. And perhaps part of that is budget where they could yeah, we can just shoot this empty beach. We can't do a CGI city here that is going to get wiped out by this big old wave. But again, it doesn't work. It's cheap and it's easy and they can be better. 12. All right. So here are some small notes. So whenever I give notes on things, there are the big notes and then there's the little stuff where I just raise the question and move on. And so that's what I'm going to do with you right now. So things that we see on screen that we immediately, even if we see them on the page, that if you're treating this world as if it is a real place with real people in it that are doing real things, then these are the kinds of questions that should pop out at you. Okay, we can assume that the eye of the world is buried because it's things that happened during the breaking of the world, buried it. But how did they locate it? How did they know to dig there? Who dug this hole at the eye? They've got these ladders going down the stairs. And why is it abandoned now if they think it's the eye and the eye is the dark one's prison? Nobody is there. No one, there's no logic around this. It's just simply a place that they go to and can just walk down into. Moraine even says, we don't know what this place is, which sort of implies that they've studied it, been there, but again, nobody's there now because the Blight's there now, but wouldn't that then be guarded by you know, members of the Dark One's army? They didn't send everybody to go attack Faldar, did they? Like, it just seems so absurd, unless someone is pointing out, okay, the fact that nobody is here right now. They want Rand to get down here to the eye and do what he does because it's all a part of the Dark One's plan about getting out of this prison is that Rand needs to get down there. 
But then somebody needs to ask that, point that out. Maybe that's going to be a season two thing where somebody is suddenly clever and says, oh, maybe that's why it was so easy is that he wanted us to do this. So anyway, something that jumped out at me. There was a whole bunch of wonky spacing going on. It started in the ways where they couldn't go straight to the eye because of Majin Sin chasing them. But somehow both Moraine and Loyal knew that the Faldara exit was right nearby, certainly closer, and it would get them to one day away from the eye. And then out in the blight, walking around for a while, they're not supposed to touch anything, but they're touching everything. And then they see Malkir, and, but then they also are able to see the backside of the Trolloc army going into Faldara. None of this spacing makes any sense whatsoever, and they really don't want us to question it. It's just, stuff just happens. It's a forward momentum show, and I keep using that phrase. What I mean is a show like 24, which was a big hit here in the Baker household, in part because it ended up being mockable in the later seasons. But it's the kind of thing you can't pay attention to the plot holes. You can drive 18 wheelers through the plot holes. It's just as the story unfolds forward, it's dramatic and entertaining and interesting, but don't ask for it to make any logical sense. And here you have this spacing of the blight and how they're walking through it. It makes no sense. It just go with us. They're walking and they're talking and they can see Malkir and they can see Faldara from the other side. And then suddenly they're at the eye. Okay. If you say so. Okay. Stabbing yourself when you're in a dream to get out of the dream, given that dreams are really important and that you know, people are seeing the dark one in their dreams and suddenly the dark one is real. He stabs himself to get out of it. it, it it's a cheap moment of drama to get out of the scene. The writers are always looking for the out of the scene. And it's how do you end him having this encounter with the dark one, the man in when they're in the blight? It, it's okay. We can't just wake up. That's boring. It's not dramatic. Okay. He'll stab himself. It just seems to be a ridiculous risk to take that and a, a painful one at that. There has to be another way, but no, it's more fun and visual and interesting, even though they just used a, a sword stab as a stinger to surprise us when Moraine dies, but it doesn't die. Anyway, cheap out. The next one, the fact that Moraine is holding a dagger to Rand's neck, it's such a false threat that the Dark One, given the power that we've seen him have and the fact that he was able to still her or shield her with a flick of the wrist, like he wouldn't be able to stop her from slicing Rand's throat or healing him immediately after it happened. It's absurd, but it's there just as for us as the viewers or casual viewers to think, oh, she's willing to kill him. It's cheap. It's too easy. And finally, Perrin, this is another spacing thing. He sees Fane when he is in the throne room and Fane just walks by. And so Perrin goes and follows him, leaves the throne room, goes searching, and then he ends up back in the throne room where Fane has now stabbed Loyal and Uno and what? The spacing is just so weird that it just seems like when you look back at it, it's okay, that's a little thing, but it's every little thing adds up where it's like, okay, the spacing of that and the staging of that just seems weird and probably could have been better. 13. The other part of the note sandwich 
like I said at the beginning, you start nice, you end nice. And so I will end here. I know I've been ranting and raving for over an hour. It's just, it comes from a place, please now, it comes from a place of wanting the show to be as good as it can possibly be. And I have done development so long that it frustrates me when people who do what I do are not in the room helping shape the story to make the story as good as it can be to avoid the cheap and easy outs and to avoid inconsistencies. And anyway, there is good stuff to look forward to in season two and beyond. I'm not a book cloak. I'm not a you know complete hater. There's potential here. There always will be because the wheel of time is so good as a book series. I'm looking forward to Ascension. I'm interested to see because Loyal can't possibly be dead, what they're going to do with him, how he's going to feed into trying to get their hands on the dagger, which of course is then connected to getting their hands on the horn. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Moraine's character, not being able to touch the power, but wanting to be able to get that back, that there's going to be a journey for her to be on because there's not a lot for her to do in book two, that she's going to go on some sort of journey to cure her, what she, whether she's stilled or she, and ultimately she's probably going to find out how, and Nynaeve's going to have to be the one to do it. Of course, Nynaeve will then be conflicted about it because that means that Lan and Moraine will be reunited in that way. And then, of course, once you have the ability to cure this sort of thing, there's another character in the story who has experienced this in Loghain. And, but then there's fun things that you can do with the fact that you could have someone like Moraine or Loghain pretending to be powerless, but then being able to take people by surprise because, in fact, they do have their power back because the cure has been found. Anyway, all of that stuff is in there, and I'm very curious to see where they go with that. I'm curious, Nynaeve and Gwen going to the tower to train seems inevitable. And obviously Matt is back in Tarvalon, and so getting him back into the story, looking a little bit different than he does now. And I'm really interested to see how far they're willing to push the Matt going to the dark side thing, because there was very much an Anakin Skywalker look to him as he was heading into Darvalon in this episode. Matt's going to want to get his hands on the dagger, so he's going to be woven into that storyline. And of course, we're trying to get the horn. That's going to be a part of it. And there's stuff in book two, which I'm not going to talk about right now, which I am looking forward to there's stuff in there that is very compelling involving the sentient and forsaken and i'm very curious to see what they choose to do with that and i know i'm supposed to be leaving off in a positive way and so i'll try to spin this positively the fact that this is what we got in season one when they had a lot of lead time to write those outlines get them cleared by everybody go through multiple revisions same with the scripts being able to have everyone signing off on it while they're working and building up pre-production, they don't have the luxury of that time moving forward. That to some degree, the production is going to be riding on rails, that they have to hold on to this runaway train for the rest of the way, that they're going to have these rhythms of generating the outlines and then the scripts quickly being able to, because there's only a certain amount of time you can hang on to the actors and the forward momentum, the rhythms of this thing. And yes, TV is a little bit different now in that particularly with streaming services that you're not locked into every fall, we need to start our next season. They can have more production time. The window of filming it may be extended because the show has been successful and so they're going to have more time and money to play with. But again, in the end, it's like they're going to have to generate material back to back to back to back to back. 
And so they don't have the indefinite lead time anymore. And in some ways, season one is going to be the best it's going to get in that they had time to think things through. And as you can hear from my rant, I don't know that they did that particularly well. That said, they've ironed out some of the issues, they've figured things out, they are seeing what's working and what's not. And so you hope that their process will be faster and better, that they will have learned some lessons from season one that will apply to season two and beyond. And so that's where my hope comes from, is that they're going to be able to do it better moving forward. But as I said, that's going to be counteracted a bit by how much less time they're going to have to actually pull all the pieces together. So anyway, fingers crossed, we're going to have a, probably a very long off season. I know they're already filming, but post-production is going to take a while. Be very curious. And we'll find out, I'll find out along with everyone else when they are going to premiere, but I'm hopeful I'm going to watch season two. They haven't put me off yet. There were moments during the season where it's okay. I've been really looking forward to this a long time, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to see this through. Lord knows I have members of my own household who are terribly interested in the show moving forward, who are book lovers and are just baffled by some of the choices. But again, we'll give it another shot. But uh, fingers crossed and yeah. So here at the end of season one of the wheel of time is my opportunity to say thank you for anyone who is, continues to listen and has seen season one through to the end with me. I will be here for season two when it comes around, but until then, starting next week, um, actually in a couple of days from actually tomorrow, from when I'm recording this, I'm going to be doing the book of Boba Fett and which will carry this podcast through to the beginning of February. And then in April, House of the Dragons, I'll be covering that one. Not sure what I'll be doing in between. We shall see how things unfold. But again, thank you for listening to this. If you're interested in Book of Boba Fett, keep on listening. And uh, all right, that's it. Again, thank you for listening. And as always, the call to action is tell people about the podcast. If anyone watched The Wheel of Time and want to give this a listen, and if you know anybody who likes Star Wars stuff, have them listen to the Book of Boba Fett shows. And give me a call on the website, b13podcast.com. Leave me a voicemail, send me an email. We'd love to hear from you. And all right, this one has been way too long. I apologize if there's been too much negativity. Again, I'm just a creative exec and a screenwriter who takes this stuff seriously and would hope that Rafe would be hiring people like me to step in and give him the feedback that he very much needs to hear. So anyway, happy new year, everybody. And uh, I'll talk with you soon.